You're supposed to sit on your ass and nod at stupid things. Man, that's hard to do. But if you don't, they'll screw you. And if you do, they'll screw you too. Ain't that the truth? If you don't, they'll screw you, and if they if you do, they'll screw you too. That's just the way it works. Welcome to the modern world, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Ryan. I found this uh, passage from an old journal. It's interesting. Uh, it's probably twenty years old. Um, I just dug it up the other day. Actually, it fell off a shelf, and I picked it up and was looking at it. It says, uh, if the essential struggle of our age is to regain control over self-perpetuating systems, and then in parentheses I wrote governments, religions, corporations, then we must understand that our resistance cannot feed into the dynamic of the systems we're trying to weaken and control. Hence, we cannot buy our way out of consumerism or simply increase efficiency as a way to reduce energy consumption. We cannot overcome violence with violence. This insight, this insight which dates back to Thoreau's civil disobedience, has percolated up to the present day through the minds of Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Nelson Mandela. Hmm. They and their followers are understood that the key to weakening a system is to starve it and that these systems of social control all feed on the energy generated by social conflict. When we fight in the streets, out come the tools of social controls and the draconian methods seem justified by the looting and bloodshed that preceded them and the big wheel keeps on turning. To break the cycle, we have to starve it. If you grew up at the base of cascading abuse coming down to you generation after generation and you feel it flowing through you, choose not to have children or at least examine your heart in depth to be sure you can resist passing that dark energy along. And then there's a quotation. The first principle of nonviolence is not cooperating with anything humiliating. That's attributed to Gandhi. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this stuff a long time, apparently. It's funny when you look back on journals 15, 20, 25 years old and you realize you've been thinking about the same shit your whole life and you still haven't figured it out. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's uh, an argument for civil disobedience, nonviolent resistance. And I think it makes sense. I think it's accurate as far as it goes. And yet, another part of me looks at the course of history and says, maybe the um, popularity of nonviolent resistance is simply the system... Uh, perpetuating an ideology that makes it easier for the system. 
In other words, it's kind of like, you know, fight like a gentleman, put up your dukes and, you know, no low blows. And then I'll kick you in the balls by calling out the National Guard or the police, you know, who are trained to uh, beat up. I don't know if you saw the the clip, the recent clip uh, in St. Louis of the old lady who gets trampled by the police. They step on her like she's a dead dog. It, it's unbelievable. Uh, you know, and the police the next day released a press release saying oh, she uh, resisted, uh, she refused to obey orders, and uh, so, you know, the, the force was justified. The lady's got to be in her 70s at least. And these assholes in their armor fucking look like centurions just knocked her down, stepped on her, handcuffed her. Come on, give me a fucking break. I don't know. I've been thinking about this for at least 30 years, and I don't know. Sometimes it seems like the argument I just read to you makes perfect sense. You don't feed into the storm by trying to quell it. Um, But then sometimes I look and I say, yeah, when do things ever change without serious threat to the structures. Right now, the Republicans are trying for the 50th time to pass legislation repealing Obamacare. They're trying to do it in a few days without a CBO report. For those of you who don't follow American politics very closely, CBO is the Congressional Budget Office, which analyzes proposed legislation and it's a nonpartisan organization. It's one of the few organizations in American government that's still trusted to be objective. And they come out with uh, a report saying, okay, if this legislation were to pass, it would have this effect on the budget. It would uh, cost this much money. It would throw this many people into poverty, whatever. And the Republicans are trying to pass this shit without even a CBO report, slip it through in the middle of the night. What are they doing? They're stealing health. They're stealing the right, which most people in the developed world agree is a right, to have the basic health care provided by the state. So here we are, the richest country in the fucking history of the world, and they're trying to steal the funding for pregnant women to have health care, for poor old people, for kids born with congenital defects. I'm not getting into, I know that there are subtleties and there are arguments on both sides of uh, any issue, including this one, but... We've got $700 billion for the military, but we don't have anything to take care of sick people. What kind of civilization is that? That leads me to think about uh, Burning Man. I know I talked a little bit about my thoughts about Burning Man a couple of weeks ago, but I'm still thinking about it. And I'm getting, the more I think about it, the less, but the less admiration I feel for it, I guess, is what I'm getting at. 
Uh, there were, you know, there there are beautiful things about that organization. The, I mean, the the organization, the fact that that organizing happens, very beautiful things about that. It's it's an example of human capacity that is um, truly impressive. But the more I think about it, the more it seems like an a huge waste of energy, a huge waste of creativity, of resources. I mean, not just the obvious stuff, not just the light and the fire, the the propane or whatever it is they use to blow those giant flames into the night sky. All that energy literally goes up in smoke. It helps no one. It improves no one's lives. You know, you could argue, oh, it, it improves the lives of the people who go there. And yeah, I guess that's what bothers me. That's my point. It's self-indulgent. Peacocking. It's look at me. Look how rich I am. Look at how much, how creative I am. Look at how, you know, big my speakers are. Look at uh, the flamethrowers on my art car. Look at my funny hat and my funny outfit and my cool goggles and my fake fur coat with LED lights embedded in it that costs $500. It's essentially a frenzy of consumerism. And it presents itself as an alternative to consumerism. It presents itself as a gift economy and an alternative to the conventional ways of doing things, and, and to some extent it is. But there are a lot of people walking around saying, oh man, wouldn't it be great if life were like Burning Man? Well, no, no, it wouldn't because what Burning Man is is a bunch of people who have a lot of money, a lot of extra money, and can afford the tickets, which are between 500 and and $1,000 each. The transportation costs, the time away from work, the all the supplies you buy to go in there, and then all your knickknacks and your willy wags and your art car and your this and your that, it's a fucking lot of money to go hang out in the desert in the dust and 100 degrees and fucking like being on another planet. That's a lot of money, which is why... Of the 70,000 people out there, I bet there wasn't 100, 100 black people. Uh, very, very few black people. Not that I saw all 70,000 people out there, but I might have seen three black people the whole time I was out there. So while I admire what the energy and the creativity and to some extent, some of the philosophical underpinnings of what's going on out there. I can't help feeling like, Jesus, can we do, can we take some of that energy and some of that creativity and apply it to making the world a better place for people? Couldn't we take, man, even a fifth of the investment of money and energy and creativity that goes up in smoke every year into rehabilitating some inner cities, into um, providing education for kids that can't afford it, into 
uh, setting up clinics in, in rural areas where people don't have access to, to decent dentistry or to any kind of medical care, any of this stuff. I mean, you know, you can't like swing a cat without hitting somebody who needs help in this country and it's getting worse. And here are all these upper class people, myself and among them out there singing and dancing and prancing around in their goofy outfits helping nobody and at the end just burn it all down until next year yeah so I don't know that that this is an answer to the problem or an expression of the problem I think I'd I'd feel much better about getting together with a bunch of cool creative smart hippies and, and building something that would have a lasting beneficial effect on somebody's life. But maybe I'm just a self-righteous prick, so who knows? What else have I been thinking? I've been thinking about this whole nuclear situation with North Korea. Uh, And it's always struck me as funny how, you know, the premise is that the United States, because we're such a fantastic country, um... And because we invented these fucking things, we can be trusted with nuclear weapons and our friends can be trusted with nuclear weapons, but they must not get into the hands of the enemies, the rogue states, the irresponsible little fucks with weird haircuts. Like that guy in North Korea, he can't have nukes. Well, why? Who says, where's the law that says some countries get to have some technology and other countries don't? There's no real defensible argument that I've ever heard that explains why some countries are allowed and, and it's, it's correct and righteous that some countries should have these incredibly destructive weapons and others shouldn't. Now, of course, it's just a question of power. We don't want them to have those because then we our power over them diminishes and our power over terrorist groups diminishes because if they get a hold of nukes, then we've got other issues. So essentially what we're saying is you can't have those weapons because it would fuck up our domination of the planet, which is the truth of what's going on. But it's predicated upon this idea that our domination of the planet is a good thing. Not only a good thing for us, but a good thing for the world, for the people of the world, and a good thing for the planet itself. And as far as I can tell, the evidence for that is mixed at best and overwhelmingly negative if you look at it with clear eyes. So it seems to me that maybe the best possible thing that could happen, which is going to happen sooner or later, is that everybody's going to have access to nukes. Technology is moving along. Nuclear weapons technology in its most basic form is World War II technology. So, you know, this is like trying to keep all the countries in the world from getting, you know, fucking vacuum tubes or whatever the fuck they were making radios out of in those days. Punch card computers that they were using in the 1940s and 50s. You can't stop it. It's going to happen. 
It's already happening. You've already got Pakistan, and Pakistan is selling that shit. They sold that shit to North Korea, apparently. So it's out there. And it's the more time goes by, the more this technology is going to become available because it'll be less and less advanced as other technology becomes more advanced. And because it's all the cat's already out of the bag. So what is coming? Well, it's interesting because let's say we live in a neighborhood where there are a couple of massive mansions with very wealthy people in them. And the rest of the neighborhood is like a favela. It's like uh, Rio. It's a ghetto with a lot of violence, a lot of disease, people living in shacks, shitting in the street, starving. Well, that's pretty much the state of the world. And so in our little village, the people in the mansions, they have machine guns. And that's why the poor people never attack those mansions. Occasionally, somebody will throw a rock over the wall, maybe throw a Molotov cocktail in there. But in general, the violence is pretty much uh, contained in the, in the ghettos, in the favelas. But what happens when everybody has machine guns? Then what happens? Well, either the people in the big mansions decide that the only way they're going to survive is to spread the wealth so that everybody can live, or they're going to try to defend those mansions, but if everybody's got the same weapons, it's going to be harder and harder to do. I think that's where we are now. I think that's we're on the verge of a major turning point, a major crossroads in human history where equalizing technology will become available. And as it becomes available to small states and to non-state actors, there are going to be some big decisions to make about how we distribute wealth. And unfortunately, from what I understand of history, we as a species have failed miserably at voluntarily distributing wealth in any sort of equitable way in the last 10,000 years. Now, on the good side, we were really good at it for about two or 300,000 years before that. But that was when we were living in small-scale communities where we knew each other. When it's a large-scale community where the people who are in charge of distributing the wealth don't know the people that they're screwing over, they tend to screw them over. So it seems to me that the key to everything is a dramatic reduction in the scale of human societies. And I hope that doesn't happen by disease or warfare or drought or massive climactic fuck-ups that kill hundreds of millions of people. I hope it happens intelligently and intentionally by Um, providing incentives to people to not have children. And the higher the incentives to not have children, the fewer children there will be. Human population drops dramatically. And I think the best way to uh, incentivize that is through a minimum basic income that uh, includes bonuses for people who don't have children. So, you know, I've said that before, and I think it's a pipe dream, but hey, that's all you got, right? That's all I got. 
All right. What else have I been thinking about? Uh, so the uh, you know, three points I said, I have my little notes here. I have burning man with purpose. Uh, I have maybe everyone should have nukes. And then the last one is about the eclipse that I saw a few weeks ago. And I've been talking with people about it. And I feel like a real snob because people say, you know, they, oh, you saw the eclipse. Oh, what was that like? And I talk about it and they're like, yeah, well, you know, I saw it. I was in uh, San Francisco. It was 80% or whatever it was. And um, I feel like a, a snob because what I think and often say is an eclipse is a thing where you either are in the path of totality or forget about it. It's an 80% eclipse is not 80% of an eclipse experience. You have the experience of an eclipse if you are at 100%. At 99%, you do not have the experience of an eclipse. It's like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either in the eclipse or you're not. There's no mostly pregnant. Uh, with all due respect to our Amazon brothers and sisters who believe in partable paternity, uh, there there is no almost pregnant or mostly pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not, and you either saw an eclipse or you didn't. And 99%, you didn't see it. Sorry. And that's because the experience is about that moment when that incomparable moment where you're looking at the sun and you're seeing this ring of fire and the world around you goes dark and people break into tears and start laughing nervously and shit gets fucking weird. That's what a hundred percent is. 99% is people go, Oh, look, it's kind of dark. It's like their shadow. Oh, that's not the same thing. And I was thinking that there are ideas like that. Like there, there are, in fact, a lot of ideas are like that, where you either get it or you don't. And again, I know I'm at danger of sounding, shooting myself in the foot because there are a lot of ideas I think I get that I don't. And, you know, that's just part of being alive. But I think, you know, there are so many ideas that when you strip away the subtlety and the nuance, there's nothing left. And yet... People generally speak in these oversimplified, um, watered-down versions of complicated ideas. And so it's, it's, it's amazing to watch this. You know, for, I was thinking, for example, I was talking with a friend the other day. We are talking about gender. And we are talking about how in the 60s and 70s, the, in, particularly in American academia and, and even in psychiatry, the idea that gender was totally socially constructed was very popular. And to some extent, it, it seems to have made a comeback uh, among college-age people and their wayward professors uh, these days. Um, Stephen Picker refers to this as the blank slate, which is what he was arguing against in his famous book. Um, But in the 70s, this idea that gender was a social construct, there was no biological basis for gender. So this might sound like, well, who gives a shit? This is an academic dispute. But it had concrete real-life repercussions. 
A friend of mine named John Colapinto, who's a staff writer on The New Yorker, he wrote a book called Just As God Made Him, I think, is the name of the book. And it was about this guy who I think was born in British Columbia, maybe Vancouver. And uh, so he's a little baby, and they were doing a, um, a circumcision, and, you know, one of the worst phrases in the English language is botched circumcision. So they botched the circumcision and cut off half this guy's dick, this little boy's dick, and they can, his parents consulted uh, Dr. John Money, who was one of the leading sexologists and, and psychologists dealing with sexuality in the world. Now, John Money uh, was not a bad guy. He, uh, if memory serves, he was an outspoken supporter of gay rights, um, totally undermined and, and dismissed the idea that homosexuality was a mental illness, which it was still categorized as such in the 70s. Um, he, was, he was progressive. He was a good guy. But he believed in this cultural construction of gender that was so popular at the time. And so when he was consulted by the parents, he told them that the best thing to do would be to totally remove the boy's penis, um, surgically construct a vagina, and raise this child as a little girl, and she would never know the difference. It wouldn't matter at all because she's so young at this point that you can just, she's just a girl. So we'll raise her as a girl, which they did. And this little girl grew up playing with trucks, climbing trees, playing with the boys, no interest in hanging out with the other little girls. By the time she was a teenager, she identified as a lesbian, butch, lesbian, 15-year-old. And at some point, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 years of age, her parents sat her down and told her the truth, which blew her fucking mind. And then she switched and identified as a boy, um, and I believe was in gender reassignment uh, protocol, going to have a penis, a tie, all, the, all this stuff. Uh, John met her, him, I guess, at this point, and um, they wrote a book. John wrote the book, uh, and the understanding was that they would share the royalties, and um, I think maybe even before the book was published, um, he... The, the subject of the book committed suicide. So, and that's one example, one case. And there are historically many cases like that. So what's my point? Uh, some aspects of gender are culturally conditioned, but several very important foundational aspects of gender are biologically based. So that complex idea, nuanced idea, where we can argue about which aspects are cultural and which aspects are biological and and it can move around and nobody can be 100% certain. It's hard for people to hold an idea like that in their head because it's actually many ideas and it's alive, it's moving. It's like trying to hold a baby that's squirming around and dipped in oil. It's really hard. 
And so people just want to hold something that's dead and still and simple. Simple ideas, right? Black people are good. Or race is a cultural construct. Or, you know, women suck at math. Or whatever. Take your pick. There's so many of them out there. Men are more interested in sex than women. All these, I, all of these things I've just said are demonstrably untrue, although there's an aspect, there's a, there's a part where you could argue that some part of that may be true. Women, for example, there's a great essay by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, and it's, it's something like why, why white people are like women and black people are like men. It's something like that. And it's in it's online. It's in his archives that he has online. It's a really interesting article because he argues that it that this idea which which is so uh provocative that women are not as good as men at mathematics is both true and untrue. And see, this is what I'm getting at. That the truth, the the reality of advanced thought is that you have to be able to hold two opposing views in your head at the same time. Some Somebody said that's the essence of intelligence. I forget who, who the quote is attributed to. But this is the essence of advanced thinking, in my opinion, is being able to, to recognize that pretty much everything is both true and untrue. Pretty much everything is yes, but... And I know that's a pain in the ass. I know that's very inconvenient. I know it's it makes life frustrating and confusing and takes way too much energy, but it's the reality. So in the example I'm, I brought up, uh, women aren't as good at mathematics as men. Okay, how can that be both true and untrue? Well, as Gladwell points out, you've got, you've got these bell curves. You got, essentially with men, you have an upside down bell curve. So it it's high on the bottom, goes down in the middle, and then goes back up at the, at the right side. So what that means is that men tend to group as really shitty at math. And then there are a few that are really, really good at math. And with women's test scores in mathematics, it's it's the inverse of that, where the high and the low are low and the middle is high. So it's like the from the left side, it's low, it goes up in the middle and then down. So there are more women in the middle. So more women are pretty good at math than men. But when you get to the very, very high achievers, they tend to be almost all men. So are men better at math than women? It depends how you measure it. It depends what you're looking at. Are you looking at average ability? Are you looking at how, of 100 women, maybe 50 of them are pretty good. But only one or two are really good. Whereas with men, maybe 30 of them are pretty good, but eight or nine are really good. So it's just a different way of measuring things. Um, Gladwell talks about, are black people faster runners than white people. Well, it's the same thing. If you look at the very, very fastest sprinters in the world, they're all black. 
But if you look at the bell curve, what you find is that among white racers, there are a lot of quite good sprinters who are white. But not a, but very few who are at the very extreme, the very high extreme. I don't know, I've talked about this too long. But my point is that it can be very frustrating to talk about stuff like this, especially in an environment where you need to be quick, you need to send out sound bites, you need to be pithy, you need to uh, talk about something in a way that is easily graspable, immediately understood. That's bullshit. That's not how life is. Very few things are easily graspable and quickly understood. If it's easily graspable, it's probably not true. It's some bullshit. It's some pre-chewed, pre-digested baby food that they're feeding you. And that's why podcasting, in my opinion, is so important, where you get someone who can talk about an idea for a fucking hour if they want to. You can loop around it. You can challenge it. You can you can change your mind in the course of a conversation. You're not going to hear that on TV or radio. So uh, that's why a lot of ideas are like an eclipse. You either get it, and by get it, I mean you acknowledge the subtleties and the twists and the turns and the ways in which it doubles back on itself, or you're just spouting bullshit. Now, let's move on to the next thing I read just today. This is uh, from 1782. This is called, um, this is an excerpt from a book by Hector Saint-Jean de Crevecoeur or something like that. It's a French, French name. I don't know how to pronounce. My French pronunciation is, I don't know. I start, I start talking French. I, I feel like a naked guy at a party where everyone else has clothes on. I have no idea how to uh, pronounce things in French. Uh, anyway, this is uh, from a, a collection of letters that he wrote that were published in Europe in the late 1700s after he had lived in uh, colonial America. Uh, I guess he lived in New York State, but in the 1700s when it was the frontier, right? Um. It's very interesting. He was talking about uh, some uh, Europeans who were captured by the Indians and uh, held as um, slaves, uh, essentially, he says, as slaves. Um, and some of the, the European friends raised a bunch of money or I don't know what they were using at the time to, to ransom slaves, and they offered it to the Indians. So the Indians went to their European captives and gave them a choice and said, if you want, you can leave. And the Europeans, uh, now I'm quoting from the letter, they chose to remain. And the reasons they gave would greatly surprise you. The most perfect freedom, the ease of living, the absence of those cares and corroding solicitudes which so often prevail with us. And many more motives, which I forgot, made them prefer that life of which we entertain such dreadful opinions. So you can see, even then, the Hobbesian narrative was strong. Oh, those savages and their horrible lives. But people have an opportunity who've, who've been there, who've seen it. They're like, yeah, thanks. I don't want to be rescued. He goes on. 
It cannot be, therefore, so bad as we generally conceive it to be. There must be in their social bond something singularly captivating and far superior to anything to be boasted of among us. For thousands of Europeans have gone to live with the Indians, and we have no examples of even one of those Aborigines having from choice become Europeans. Take a young Indian lad, give him the best education you possibly can, load him with your bounty, with presents, nay, with riches, yet he will secretly long for his native woods, which you would imagine he must have long since forgot, and on the first opportunity he can possibly find, you will see him voluntarily leave behind him all you have given him and return with inexpressible joy to lie on the mats of his father's. That's one of many examples of people who have seen both sides of the coin, the civilized and the uncivilized, choosing consistently to go back and live with the uncivilized. It's funny how certain we are. We, you know, I use that in air quotes, but... uh, almost everyone is, in the superiority of civilization, despite the overwhelming evidence that people who are in a position to judge, people who have lived in both places, as this author says, as Benjamin Franklin said, as many others have said, almost always choose the uncivilized life. They choose the sense of community, they choose the love, they choose the, the being part of nature as opposed to working all the time. They choose the leisure. They, I mean, it's, it was so common for colonial people to run away to live with the Indians that there was a law passed in colonial America to stop them from doing so. It was illegal to run off to live with the Indians. Now, if life among the Indians was so bad, now, let's keep in mind, this is Indi- these are Indian tribes who have been decimated by disease, right? Because smallpox and measles and other diseases that the filthy Europeans brought with them have already spread across the, the continent, wiping people out. These are Indians who are being attacked by colonial military forces who are expanding and fighting and trying to steal their land and so forth. So these are not cultures that are living in their prime. These are cultures that are already under great stress. And yet, even in that condition, Europeans who saw both sides of the river, every chance they got, they swam back across the river to the Indian side. All right, I'm going to read a few letters, uh, a few of your emails, and then call it a day here. I'm already 40 minutes into this raving and ranting and ranting and raving. Uh, Hi, Chris. I recently had a threesome with one of my best friends and his wife, who is also one of my best friends. Uh, I third wheel with them all the time. I did sort of see this coming, but my hope is that this doesn't change our friendship. Um, I did piss my friend off when his wife and I had a seriously hot makeout session during the three-way. All new to me, I guess I'm not 100% about three-way etiquette. His wife is absolutely beautiful, 
All three of us are good looking. I'm sure some people would pay money to see it. I didn't initiate the three-way. He did. I hold a lot of respect and love both of them dearly, and they know it. My friend can be the jealous type. When it comes to sex, I am the passionate type who prefers to make love and not just slam genitals together. Last weekend was the first time, I'd assume not the last. My question is, how do I do this without making my friend want to punch me? It is going to change. Is it going to change our dynamic as friends? It's all private, so please don't use my full name. Okay. Now, I assume this letter is written by a dude. It sure sounds like a dude. Um, and I don't think the husband would want to punch a woman if it was a three-way with his wife and another woman. So it sounds to me like here's, here's what's going on here. You are a guest. As a guest, your job is to accept what's offered to you graciously, to ask for nothing more than what is offered to you, to never assume you have the right to anything that isn't offered to you, and to not overstay your welcome as a guest. Now, if we're talking about a dinner... And your your friends, uh, they're married, they live together, and they invite you over, you're hanging out, like, hey, you want to stay for dinner? Like, oh, okay, sure. Okay, stay for dinner. Uh, if the guy's making, you know, whatever it is, pasta, let's say they're making pasta and red wine for you. You don't talk about how the wine you have at home is better than the wine that they're giving you. You don't talk about how you prefer your pasta more al dente than, than this. You don't talk about how your mother makes a better sauce. In other words, you don't be a dick. Now, it sounds to me, forgive me, but you're kind of being a dick here. These people invited you into their intimate, maybe their most intimate space, and... You have a seriously hot makeout session with his wife. And then you say, yeah, you tell me how beautiful you all are and how people would pay to see it. Okay. Sounds like you got some ego. Uh, you say your friend can be the jealous type. And then the very next, next sentence is when it comes to sex, I am the passionate type who prefers to make love and not just slam genitals together. Well, you know what? There's a lot of space between making love and slamming genitals together. And maybe your buddy's not the jealous type because he invited you to have sex with his wife, right? So that doesn't sound like a jealous guy to me. Sounds to me like he got a little pissed off when he saw you getting all Barry White with his wife. You're the third guy. You're the, you're the second guy, but you're the third person in this situation. You're the guest. So as the guest, you need to make sure that you're not a threat to the people who've invited you into their home. And it sounds to me like you're not being particularly respectful about that. Now, you don't need to be slamming genitals together 
if you're not making love, you could also be friendly, kind, affectionate, um, light, easy, without, you know, it being sort of, uh, you know, animalistic and brutal. There, there are lots of ways to have sex between making love and slamming genitals. So, again, that, that phrasing is very self-justifying, and it doesn't sound to me like you're being cool about this. If you are thinking about trying to steal this guy's wife, then you're a fucking snake because they're trusting you and you're being dishonest about your agenda. Assuming you're not trying to steal the guy's wife and that you're happy with being a loved, trusted friend, then make it clear that you're happy with that and that's, and you don't have a right to anything else. When you start making love with someone else's wife, you're making a lot of assumptions there. And uh, I think your, your friend deserves a lot more respect than what you're giving him there. Um, because, you know, he, he invited you into this situation. He showed you the trust to, um, to bring you into it. And, um, you should feel lucky. You should feel honored and, uh, don't take anything for granted and, uh, stop the hot makeout sessions. Let them set the tone, you know, let them decide what feels comfortable for them. And then you go along with that. But this whole, you know, we're all beautiful and, you know, my friend's jealous. And I don't think your friend's jealous, dude. I think you um, overstayed your welcome as a guest there. You you were a little too comfortable and a little too, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know. You want to you wanna accept things as they're offered. You don't want to take things that haven't been offered. And it sounds like that's what you did. Okay. Um, I find myself struggling with a feeling I've had for a long time. How I wish I could think versus how I actually think. For example, the idea of an open relationship sounds so normal to me and makes sense. However, I think that if I got into a relationship like that, my thoughts would turn 180 degrees. I guess my question to you is... Have you always felt the way you do about your core philosophical ideas or in your research and study? Did you gradually start to think this way? I want so badly to be able to figure out how to live my life the way I want to. You say so many things I agree with. Uh, If you would be so kind as to suggest readings. I know this question is vague, um, but I'm trying to figure out how to be how to think and be the person I want to be. This is from a 23 year old woman. Okay, well, you sound to me like someone who may have the capacity or may have the tendency to overthink things. And I say that as someone with the tendency to overthink things. So it takes one to know one, I guess. Um, but the problem is, I mean, even look at the way you, this woman phrased uh, the question here. Uh, no, no, no. Have you always felt the way you do about some of your core philosophical ideas? Or in your research and study, did you gradually start to think this way? Um, 
yeah, I've done a lot of research. I've done a lot of study. But you know what else I've done a lot of? I've done a lot of living. And whatever core philosophical ideas I have may be expressed in ways that reflect study and research. But those core philosophical positions came about through experience. And in fact, some of the most interesting insights that I've had in life were those in which my experience contradicted my thinking. So experience trumps thinking every time in my view. And the fact that you didn't even list experience as one of the possible ways to arrive at core philosophical beliefs suggests to me that you don't, you're not really thinking that way. And I think it would be a great benefit for you if you did. See, the thing about thinking is that it's, you know, the old adage, if if, all, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? And thinking is like the biggest hammer in the world because, wow, we think about things, we can figure things out, we, we're so good, we're the thinking ape, we're, the, you know, we think in teams, we our thoughts accumulate and they become science and technology and blah, blah, blah. So it's a really big part of being human is this thinking thing. And if you're smart uh, in an intellectual sense, then you're walking around with a hammer and you're used to disentangling intellectual problems and you're probably pretty good at it. And you think of yourself as a smart person and that makes you think more and more and more. But you end up being the person at the party who's not dancing, who's sitting there against the wall saying, well, you know, the syncopation is a four, four time. And you know, there's obviously an influence of blah, 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 blah. And you're fucking boring because sometimes people just want to dance and listening to you yammer on about thinking all the time can inhibit the dancing. It can inhibit the sex. It can inhibit, you know, there's nothing worse. Oh, fucking annoys me to no end when I'm eating with someone and they talk about another meal. That It's so fucking annoying. Here we are eating this delicious food that somebody cooked for us and your head, you prefer to be off on a memory of some other meal. I mean, that's like, you know, having sex with someone and, and imagining someone else. Like, really? Especially someone, like, it's the only time you're going to have sex with them. It's not like someone you've been fucking for 30 years. Like, okay, you can think about Salma Hayek occasionally. But, I mean, if it's the only time you're having sex with this person and you're thinking of someone else, you shouldn't be having sex with them. And I feel that way about food. It's like, come on, you know, we're, we're sitting here having this delicious dinner and you're talking about when you were in Italy three years ago. Fuck, shut the fuck up. So... My point is that when you imagine things, it's distinctly different from when you experience them. I was talking with a friend the other day, hanging out with her, and she kept using the phrase lived experience. And every time she said, oh, this is, I'm talking about my lived experience, I thought, what the fuck's the difference between lived experience and experience? 
I mean, isn't experience by definition lived? And I guess dreams are kind of experience. And for some people, thoughts are kind of experience. But I don't really think they are. Are they? Is a dream an experience? Anyway, there's a distinct difference between the way we imagine something is going to be and then the way it is when we live it. Now, you're talking about, in your example, you say uh, an open relationship sounds so normal and makes sense. However, I think that if I got into a relationship like that, my thoughts would turn around. Now, a relationship like what? All All you've got here is the phrase open relationship. Now, there are an endless array of relationships that can be described as open. Which one of those is your relationship going to be? Um, Who is the other person? There's another person in every relationship, at least one other person. Who is that person? What is he or she like? What does he or she want? What's going on in, in their lives? Where are you in your life? What's going on with you? See, the problem is when we imagine things, we don't imagine the details. And the details are what makes the experience a fucking experience. So, by definition, we can't possibly imagine how it's going to be. Because we don't have the experiential vocabulary to articulate it. So... I remember the first time I was going to go to India and I was talking with someone who had been there and he said to me, I said, well, I've been preparing. I've been reading the Lonely Planet Guide and blah, blah, blah. And he just sort of laughed and he said, dude, the whole point of going to India is that you can't possibly prepare. So whatever you've read, whatever you think you've prepared for, just gird your loins because you cannot possibly imagine no matter how many books you've read, no matter how many movies you've seen, you cannot possibly imagine what's about to happen to you. And he was right. So, you know, you get to India and people would say, oh, the poverty's so terrible. I don't want to go to India. I don't, I don't need to go there. Well, the thing is, yeah, you see a lot of poverty, but you also see people who are incredibly happy and they're sleeping on the street. You see these strange looks in people's eyes. You smell amazing food. You, you, the, the, the rhythm of the cows walking through the street, the, the smell of the monsoon coming, the, the shape of things, the colors, the smells, and you walk through a bazaar, the flowers and the spices and There's so much that you can't, even listening to me throwing the words at you, you still don't really know what I'm talking about unless you've been there. And in that case, the word isn't giving you the experience. The word is just reminding you of the experience. So unless you've had the experience, you don't know what the fuck I'm saying here. And similarly, you don't know what your thoughts would be in an open relationship, what your feelings would be until you experience it. Because 
Maybe in one relationship, it would feel great. In another relationship, it could feel terrible. Maybe it would feel great for the first six months. Then it would feel terrible after that. Maybe it would feel, there are so many ways it can feel. And, you know, let's say, oh, you're a 23-year-old woman. Let's assume you're heterosexual. Um, Okay, let's say you meet a guy who's 40 and he's married and he's brilliant and he's really cool and he makes you laugh and you have the best sex of your life with him but he has no interest in leaving his wife his wife is cool with him sleeping with you his wife wants to meet you and she thinks it's great that you're hanging out they have two kids really cute kids you've met them you love them now maybe in that case an open relationship is going to feel great to you. Maybe you're going to look at it and say, I really like hanging out with this guy. I don't want to mess up his family. I don't want to steal him from his wife. I just want to see this guy for a while. In the meantime, I'll keep dating. If I meet someone my own age who's not in a relationship, <clears throat> you know, maybe I'll phase this out and phase this one back in. Or who knows? But the point is, in a situation like that, an open relationship might feel absolutely perfect to you. In fact, it might be the only kind of relationship you could have with that guy. But you didn't anticipate that, did you? You just said, hmm, I think in an open relationship, I would uh, be uncomfortable. Probably because what you were doing was you were taking a previous relationship and just imagining that person off fucking someone else. And you said, oh, that wouldn't make me happy. So forget it. That would be a bad idea. You're also not imagining the opportunities that would open up to you because you can't. That's the whole point of life. That's the whole point of experience that it takes you places you can't, you couldn't have imagined that you would get to. And so my advice to you, young lady, 23 years old, young woman, is try to turn down the intellectual dial so that you can hear your heart and you can hear your spirit and you can hear other parts of your being that are equally wise and have very interesting things to say to you, but they're being drowned out by the brain and the brain is the ego. So, um, yeah, I hope that you'll, uh, give more voice to those other parts of yourself and recognize that you're not going to arrive at who you want to be and think the way you want to think and all that by more study and more research and all that. That's all well and good. But what's really important is life. Get out and live. Have experiences, um, direct experiences, not um, experiences that are mitigated through books and, and research papers. Okay, this is kind of a similar situation. I'm writing this from a hammock in a jungle hostel in Costa Rica. Um. Basically, what I'm dealing with is a fundamental clash between what I consider to be my inherent nature and my desires. I'm extraordinarily introverted. Through most of my life, I tried to pretend this wasn't the case, forcing myself to hang out with friends in order to appear normal. 
and burying the constant urge to hide from people that's deep within my psyche. Only in the last several years of my life did I realize and accept my demeanor and attempt to start working with it. I see a therapist who helps me learn cognitive behavioral tactics for dealing with social anxiety. I've succeeded in making incremental improvements, yet I still choose to spend most of my time alone if I'm able. My problem is that I want to travel. It may be the only thing other than sushi and cats that I really love. But travel requires tons of confusing, awkward conversations with strangers. I've been traveling alone for the past couple of days in Costa Rica, and although it's been pleasant, it has also been completely exhausting. When I'm not trying to figure out how to communicate with someone, I'm mentally abusing myself for failing in my last interaction. I want to cry when I think about how many of the last 48 hours I've spent painfully ashamed of my own shortcomings. It's a waste of time, yet I know it comes from a place of genuine frustration and helplessness. Um... Have you encountered any hurdles such as this in learning another language or traveling? From listening to you, you seem more extroverted, but not necessarily an obnoxiously effortless social butterfly like some fuckers. Are certain people just fundamentally handicapped by their nature, or can I somehow learn to get past this? Will it ever get less painful? Um, this is from a woman. Uh... First of all, yes, it, it in my experience, it has gotten easier with time. And I think there are two major factors in how it gets easier. One is that you learn to distinguish parts of you that just are the way they are. And there's nothing wrong with that. Part of you, for example, just likes being alone. You're comfortable with yourself. You're less comfortable with other people. Maybe you have difficulties interpreting social cues. Maybe facial expressions aren't as communicative for you as they are for other people. Um, Maybe you're, you know, on the autism spectrum somewhere. Um, which is just differently organized and neuronally. It's not handicapped. Um, In any case, being comfortable with yourself is a pretty cool thing. I think I mentioned on a previous episode how I took a friend to a float tank center and I was surprised to find her in the waiting room when I came out and she said she'd been there She'd only spent 10 or 15 minutes in the tank and then she was bored and she came out. To me, that's not boredom. To me, that's terror. That's a fear of being alone with yourself. And so as bad as it can be to be uncomfortable around other people, imagine how bad it is to be uncomfortable around yourself. At least you can get away from other people sometimes. But people who are uncomfortable with themselves, there's nowhere to hide. So when I look at you, I say, okay, there's part of this person who just likes being alone, is comfortable in solitude, and uh, isn't so adept with the social interactions. And that's cool. Accept that. That's no big deal. 
But there's also a part of you that is ashamed. And you, you talk about mentally abusing yourself. There's a lot of self-hatred, maybe. I, I don't know if that's too strong a word. But there's a lot of criticism. A lot of um, the voices in your head are saying unkind things to you. And you probably have been conditioned um, to believe that you are less charming, less funny, less attractive, less intelligent than you are. The person you see in the mirror is probably not an accurate representation of what other people see when they look at you. When other people look at you, they probably see someone who you'd be amazed by. It's like the people with anorexia who look in the mirror and see fat, 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 and everyone around them is saying, my God, you're starving yourself to death. Please eat something. There can be this huge disconnect between who you believe yourself to be and what other people know you to be. And so distinguishing those two things, one of which is just your nature and one of which is a psychological burden that you're carrying is very important. And once you've distinguished those two things, then I think what you want to do is externalize the psychological burden or these voices and begin... Uh, once you get them outside your head, then you can begin to um, wear them down and get rid of them. And so the way you do that, one of the ways you do that is, well, you do it however you can, but I would say the simplest way is just to write down. When you hear these voices, when you're mentally abusing yourself, write down what you're hearing in your head. You're stupid. You should try harder. Um, what? I don't know. What? Well, I don't know what they say. You know. You hear them. Write down. And it's going to be humiliating. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be painful. But do it. Why not? What do you have to lose? You're hearing it anyway, right? It's already happening in your head. You might as well externalize it. Write it down. It's not going to get stronger. In fact, it makes you... Th- It makes you think it's going to get stronger, and that's why it's hard to do. But it's like a fucking charlatan who doesn't want you to look behind the curtain. Because once you externalize them, then you see how ridiculous they are. You can start to see how fucking stupid these voices are. And the more you examine them in the light of day, the more you're going to realize that you don't need to listen to this shit. That this is wrong. And so I said before that there are, you know, two primary mechanisms. The one is distinguish what's you and will always be you and is cool, which is this predilection to prefer solitude sometimes, which again, there's no judgment around that. There shouldn't be. It's cool. That's great. The judgment or the, the, the thing you want to deal with 
is this self-sabotage, this anxiety, this mental abuse that you're doing to yourself, which isn't serving you at all. It's a weight you're carrying that has absolutely no value to you. And the sooner you can drop that shit in a river, the better. So that's step one. Step two is learning to not give a shit. And this is very important um, because the fact is that we all look like shitheads sometimes. We all humiliate ourselves publicly sometimes. We all make mistakes. And the difference is some of us are like, yeah, well, I'm a fucking idiot. And then we go on with life and others will spend the rest of their lives reliving that moment and cringing in their beds at night. Which do you want to be? If it's the former, then you have to inure yourself to feeling uh, like a fuck up. Because you are. You're a fuck up. So am I. So is every other person listening to this. And we, You know, every one of us. We fuck up. Now, the difference, the key is, do you do it intentionally? Are you trying to hurt people? Are you, are you a bad, I mean, you're not a bad person for fucking up. You're a bad person when you try to hurt other people. That's what makes you a bad person. You're not a bad person because you make mistakes. You're not a bad person because your hair looks weird when you get up in the morning. You're not a bad person because your breath stinks when you haven't brushed your teeth for 24 hours. See, a lot of people see these things, and this is this body shame that I get into a lot. A lot of people feel like the fact that they take a stinky shit once a day makes them horrible. And once you believe that, then then you're screwed because then your animality, this, the simple fact that you have a body will always make you feel dirty and bad. And that's how a lot of religions get their fucking hooks into you. The fact that you want to have sex makes you evil. That's the devil's work. Oh, you want to touch your dick? You want to touch your pussy? Oh, you're bad. You're bad. Well, once they get that into you and they get it into you at a very young age, then they can fuck with you for the rest of your life. So you want to spit those hooks out. You want to get all those fucking hooks out of your mouth that keep you caught on that line of guilt and shame. So How do you do that? Well, one way you could do it is by intentionally making mistakes and then laughing. Because that's the only response to being human, I think. The only response with any wisdom at all is just to fucking laugh. It's ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. If you want to learn another language, believe me, the best way to learn another language is get used to fucking up. The more mistakes you make, the faster you're going to learn the language. The first time I taught English was in San Francisco at this place where I got my TEFL degree. And there was like a student teacher practice situation. And I had two classes. One was full of Japanese and the other was full of Russians. Now, the Japanese, they don't like making mistakes, especially in front of other people. So I had 20 people in that class. I'd say, uh, you know, today I walk. Yesterday, I 
And I'd look around, nobody would raise their hand. I'd call on Tomoko and she'd bury her face in her hands. Oh, please, no, please, no, please, no. It, it was just, you know, every fucking question was like drilling a hole into someone's teeth. In the Russian class, they were all yelling and screaming and they didn't give a shit. And who do you think was learning English? The Russians. The Japanese, all they were learning was that they were all failures and that they couldn't learn and they were going to go home and, you know, be all tense because they didn't learn English in their two weeks in San Francisco. Make mistakes. In fact, there are studies showing that one of the best things you can do for language acquisition is get a little drunk. I used to bring bottles of wine to some of my English classes in Spain and we'd all have a couple glasses of wine. People learn faster. Why do they learn faster? Because they relax. So you want to learn Spanish? Chill the fuck out. You want to travel? Relax. So I would say an important thing for you would be meditate, learn meditation, do yoga, do whatever you do that helps you relax. Masturbate, get drunk, whatever it is that helps you relax, relax. And then be kind to yourself. Let go of those fucking voices. Get Externalize that stuff. Write it on a piece of paper, put it up on a wall, look at it every morning, throw darts at it, tear it into a million pieces, stomp it on the floor, flush it down the toilet, because that's all bullshit. You don't need that. Let go of that stuff. And don't be ashamed of who you are. Don't be ashamed of the part of you that just wants to hang out alone sometimes, because that's beautiful. Okay, and last message is from a guy named... What's his name? Adam. Uh, I'm a love refugee, an Australian living in Sweden. I traded comfort and car, family and friends for a slice of European life. I miss all of them, but I know this isn't permanent. Um, me and my lady literally have a one-room house for all our shit. Talk about minimalism. I don't have a question, uh, I just hope to remind the Tangent family, that's you, uh, to trust their intuition. Your Roma episodes often feature younger versions of myself craving adventure and novelty, but also wanting to appease the older generation. Doubt is a pressure that can ruin us, but pressure also produces diamonds. Don't deliberate on taking chances too much, brethren. It always pays off. The divine whatever that guides us honors the truest of our intentions. Sometimes you'll never believe where you end up. Last year, I was camping above the Arctic Circle, shaking my head at the vista and remembering back to the 20-year-old me eight years ago that thought he would never leave Australia. I'll return home to my beloved family one day, and then I can rejoin the grind knowing I took chances. Qualifications don't buy you this experience. The balls to take the leap will get you exactly where you need to be and the perspective to be truly wealthy in heart and body and mind. Don't chase money, folks. Chase passion. That's from Adam. He's up there above the fucking Arctic Circle, shaking his head long way from Australia. So take it from Adam. There's no guarantee that it'll always work out, that everything always turns out wonderfully. But getting back to the first email I read, if you don't have the experience, you can't ever 
imagine the experience. And don't fool yourselves, my friends, in thinking that imagining it is in any sense similar to having it. Like I said about the eclipse, you're either there or you're not. So my advice to you is to get out there into the path of totality of your life. See the eclipse. See the whole fucking thing. When you're old and looking back, don't say, yeah, I was at, uh, you know, the 85% mark and I saw a slight change in the light. No, get out there. See it. All right, I'm done. Uh, Thank you for your support, especially those of you on Patreon.com. I really appreciate that. It tells me how much I got coming. And I think there are like, I don't know, maybe 600 people now uh, supporting the podcast on Patreon. That is super cool. If everybody listening to this right now was giving me a dollar a podcast, I'd be living in a castle, inviting homeless people to join me. But alas, uh, that's not the case. But really, if, uh, if you can afford it, if you have a credit card, and if you enjoy these podcasts and you're part of the Tangentially Speaking tribe, uh, I hope it would be great if you let me know that by being a Patreon supporter. Um, also, those of you who uh, use my Amazon affiliate link at chrisryanphd.com, Click on that once, bookmark where you land on Amazon, and then use that bookmark as your Amazon uh, link. Then a small percentage of what you spend at Amazon goes not to support the podcast because Amazon does not in any way support this podcast or any of the crazy shit that I say here. Um, But it does uh, go to award paying other bills in my life which then frees me up uh, to do more uh, podcasting. So thank you for that and uh, all your support that comes in other ways, kind emails, kindnesses that you do for each other and for yourselves. I'm going to play you out with a piece of music by a band called Explosions in the Sky. Uh, I think they're a Texas band, uh, instrumental, very interesting style. I first heard them years ago because they did the music for a TV show called Friday Night Lights, which is the most adult depiction of adolescent experience I think I've ever seen. It's a great TV show. Anyway, uh, this is called A Slow Dance. It's very brief, and it's by Explosions in the Sky. There will be show notes for this episode at tangentiallyspeaking.com. This is Roma number 23. I hope life is treating you splendidly. I'll catch you soon.